This is from the Denkoloku case 29. Bodhidharma. The case. The Buddhist master Prajnatara asked Bodhidharma, What among all things is formless? Bodhidharma said, Non-origination is formless. Prajnatara asked, What among all things is greatest? Bodhidharma said, The nature of reality is greatest. Kezan's verse. There is no more location, no bounds, no outside. Is there anything at all, even in the slightest? Now we just chanted, if we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self. We go beyond ego and past clever words. And the word if is where everything turns, if we turn inwardly. That's the challenge. <clears throat> A couple of weeks ago, we held the mondo on dealing with the challenge of losing their resolve and momentum during a three month training period of an ango. And this is of course a common issue that pertains to the challenge of sustaining Zen practice in general, not just during ango. And if you have practicing for a while, you know that there are periods in which the practice seems vibrant and meaningful. And there are periods in which it feels somewhat dull and pointless even. Why am I doing it? And like anything else with life, in life, there is a natural ebb and flow that we need to know how to meet and how to work with if we want to sustain a practice for life. Wholeheartedness, the theme for this ango, is obviously a key ingredient in sustaining lifelong practice. Wholeheartedness or wholehearted engagement with life can be seen in two ways. The first as leading to immersion in practice, and second as arising out of immersion in practice. So leading to First one, taking on the responsibility to fully and wholeheartedly engage with each moment means to keep the finger on the pulse so we can become aware when our attention veers off and we get entangled in idle thinking, which obviously happens often. It's kind of like maintaining course of a great ship in an ocean that is sometimes calm and sometimes choppy, as our lives are. And developing this acute sense of awareness leads to wholehearted immersion in practice. And leading out of. Being immersed in the practice, we become more aligned with our intrinsic nature and our speech and actions are more in accordance with reality. 
being more aligned with reality, wholeheartedness is a natural way of being that does not require any special intention or decision. Like in the case of wild animals in their natural habitat. They don't intend to be wholeheartedly engaged with their surroundings. They just simply are that way. And so as we work on embracing traditional Zen practice and interlace it through our daily activities, I thought it would be beneficial to go directly to the inception of Zen so we can intimately connect with the spiritual journey and the fundamental teachings of its founder, Bodhidharma. And it's been a while since we talked about Bodhidharma. This koan is taken from a collection called the Denkoroku, which translates as the transmission of the light. Each chapter of this book is dedicated to a different teacher, starting with Shakyamuni Buddha and chronologically moving through all the teachers in succession up to Kun Ejo, who succeeded to Dogen in Japan. 53 chapters in total. The 29th chapter is about Bodhidharma, since he was the 29th in direct succession to the Buddha. The compiler of this book was Keizan Jokin, a Japanese Zen master four generations after Dogen. Keizan also wrote the commentaries and the verses on each chapter. He is also known as the second founder of the Japanese Soto school tradition, the first one is, of course, Dogen. So going directly to Keizan's two-line verse in this case. He wrote, There is no more location, no bounds, no outside. Is there anything at all, even in the slightest? Is there anything at all? These two simple lines are quite indicative of the heart of Zen teachings, and they are both terrifying and deeply reassuring, depending how we look at it, how we connect with it. Long-time practitioners and some beginners can attest to the dynamic state of being this verse is describing. When you sit for a long time and bear witness to the gradual disintegration of your conceptual boundaries, you may experience how your physical body begins to lose its distinct outline. And you begin to feel a sense of merging with the cushion you sit on, the air that surrounds you, and everything and everyone else you happen to be sharing the space with, in person or on Zoom. At such a moment, you can try to look for security in grasping at some familiar thought or sensation, or allow yourself to sink further and further into the process of losing it all. Losing it all. What Dogen describes as body and mind drop away. So just at that point, Keizan is asking, is there anything at all, even in the slightest? Is that a problem? Is another question. Since we may experience that there is really nothing there. 
a second question that has to follow. Is that a problem? If it is, of course, we run right back to what we know. We run back to what we can grasp, hold, be defined by. Essentially, nothing is lost. But there's no way around going through the process of feeling as if we're losing ourselves and feeling the sadness and mourning that comes with it. We have to lose it all before we know that there is nothing to lose. Or in other words, there's no spiritual bypassing. The Buddha realized this 2,500 years ago and a thousand years later, Bodhidharma distilled this realization to what he called special transmission outside words and scriptures, directly pointing to one's own mind, as the reading I shared this morning at the beginning of Zazenkai. So Bodhidharma's original name was Bodhitara. He was the third son of the king of Koshi in southern India. His father, the king, was a devout Buddhist practitioner and as a gesture of his devotion, he made an offering of a precious jewel to the Buddhist master Prajnatala, who, by the way, was a female teacher. Upon receiving this jewel, Prajnatala decided to use it to discern the spiritual understanding of the three sons of the king. And so she called them. And while holding up the jewel she received from their father, she asked, Is there anything which can compare to this jewel? So it is said that the first two sons pretty much echoed each other and said, This jewel is the finest of all precious gems, and nothing can surpass it. Only a person of your spiritual greatness would be worthy to receive it. The third prince, Bodhitara, said, This is just a mundane gem and cannot be counted within the highest rank because the highest of all jewels is the jewel of reality. This has only a mundane glittering and cannot be considered to be the highest because the luster of wisdom is supreme. This has a mundane clarity and cannot be considered to be the finest because the clarity of awareness is supreme. This jewel cannot even sparkle as it does without the luminosity that knows its gleaming. If you know, you know that this is a jewel and knowing it is a jewel, you know that it is precious. If you know that it is precious, then you should know that its value is not true value itself. If you know that this is a jewel, you should also know that the jewel is not a jewel itself. This jewel is not a jewel because it is only the jewel of knowing that can discern it even as a mundane jewel. Its value is not true value itself because it's only the jewel of knowing that, that has true value. The way that you teach is a treasury of knowing, and thus you have been offered this mundane treasure. 
just as this treasure has appeared due to your wisdom, so may the treasure of awareness appear in those who awaken to it. So this incredible expression is taking the attention from what the eye sees to that by which the eye can see. And that changes everything. Of course, we assign provisional value and meaning to what we encounter, but the ability to discern is far greater than what is being discerned, since it is a wide and open potential that has no limit. In other words, it's not limited to what is being discerned, whether we consider it great or not. It is beyond, like the flashlight, that is beyond what is shedding light on. It is freed always on, from what it is shedding light on. What we see, hear, and touch is only made possible by a dynamic potential that is never hindered or stained by what we see, hear, and touch. As he says, this jewel cannot even sparkle as it does without the luminosity that knows it's gleaming. But as we know, human beings are inverted. They lose themselves and follow after what is gleaming, what sparkles, what sounds good, what tastes good, what feels good. This is how we lose ourselves, not realizing that the potential to discern is far greater than what we like or dislike. Our tradition is also known as silent illumination, which is essentially shifting the attention to that which has the potential to bear witness. And it illuminates a larger sense of reality that cannot be grasped by conventional seeing. So it is said that when Plajnatala heard this eloquent expression, she realized that this prince was a great, is a great Dharma vessel. But she also knew that the moment was not, had come yet, and so she kept silent and left. She didn't say anything after that. And this was the first encounter between Plajnatala and Bodhidharma, who later on became her successor. In this exchange, the two first sons looked at the jewel and the teacher from the perspective of a differentiating consciousness and expressed their understanding based on what they saw. Were they wrong to do so? Was that not genuine expression? What's the difference? between what they did and what Bodhidharma did. Now, seeing through the differentiating consciousness is an essential aspect of our survival as species. And so there's no need to reject, deny our capacity to discern. Provisionally or conventionally, there's nothing wrong with that. But the issue arises when the provisional is perceived to be fixed and unchanging, which is what happens when our attention gets caught up in the foreground without having some sense of the background. 
It's kind of like what I'm talking right now. You hear me. You can only hear me because of that which cannot be heard. You don't see the air coming out. You don't hear the air coming out. Only the words. But if it's not for what we don't see, what we see cannot be made possible. If, we, if it's not for what we don't hear, what we hear cannot made, be made possible. Yet we value what we hear, see, and touch. Mostly what we hear, see, and touch. And this is where we need to take an extra step and the backward step and look further. What does the eye not see or cannot see? So looking at the jewel Plajnatala was holding, Bodhidharma said, its value is not true value itself because it is only the jewel of knowing that has true value. What is not seen through the differentiating eye is the ground of what is seen and therefore has unsurpassable value. Of course, it's unsurpassable. How can you surpass? How can you grasp? Or what's the use of grasping? Maybe we should ask that. And think about how much stock we put in things that happen, in things that appear and disappear, whether in thought or in reality, in actuality, how much value we assign to what we think and feel, how often we get totally lost in the intricate plots we create in the thinking mind, and how long we hold on to them. Now, if we, if we only recognize that the true value lies in that which silently provides a constant background to the daily contents, we may, it is possible, we may be less attached to the passing thoughts and emotions, and we may be able to let them subside despite the compulsion to identify with them. So back to the story. As the story goes, at a later time, Prajnatara visited again and asked Bodhitara, what among all things is formless? Bodhitara said, non-origination is formless. Prajnatara asked, what among all things is greatest? Bodhitara said, the nature of reality is greatest. And those are the two lines brought up in this koan. Non-origination is formless, and the nature of reality is greatest. So what is there before thoughts arise, before connotations are formed, prior to the birth of the organism we call a self? Does the, back, does the foreground cover the background? Where do we come from? Where do we go? What are we before we are born? What are we after we die? And what are we really in between those two points? What do we think we are in between those two points? That we make such a big deal of it. 
What is it in between birth and death? And these are important questions we need to look at and penetrate if we want to understand the true meaning of Bodhidharma's teachings. So putting these two statements together, we might say that the nature of reality is non-origination and therefore it is unsurpassable. And therefore we are, in essence, unsurpassable. That's the mind Bodhidharma is pointing directly at. Can that be you? Commenting on this, <laughs> Kazan said, You can understand this realm as inaccessible like a 10,000 fathom precipice or as brightly illuminating all distinctions. You can think of all things as being nothing other than that and that they remain just as they are, changeless, along with oneself. But these are not at all non-arising or non-origination. Therefore, they are not formless. Prior to the separation of heaven and earth, how can you distinguish holy and ordinary? And he's referring to a state of being before the mind moves, before the discriminating consciousness grabs your attention before we go on following what arises in the mind. In this realm, he says, not a single thing can sprout, not a speck of dust can defile. It is, therefore, the greatest of the great. And it is said that the great is called inconceivable. It is also said that the inconceivable is called Dharma nature. When we chant, now I return to oneness, we are raising the intention to return to the inconceivable and the ungraspable. But if it's inconceivable, how can we return to that? What do we return to? What is that bridge that, that we have to go over in order to go from here to there? Or in other words, where is there? Where are we going? How do you travel from what, what is, from what is to what is not? There is what is and there is what is not. There is the foreground and then there is the background. What's the connection? Kazan says, prior to the separation of heaven and earth, how can you distinguish holy and ordinary? Before the thought of is and is not arises in the mind, before the appearance of duality, before this appearance shapes your view and the view of self, there, there you are never apart. There you are the inconceivable. When we try to make sense of it through thought, and explain it to the use of words, we get stuck. 
and can only express a limited aspect of reality. That's why he said, before words arise, or as I read this morning, your mind is there before the words. That's the, where language cannot go. That is where you find the mind. Where language cannot go. Your challenges in our lives do not have to be heavy, complicated, and a source of suffering. They only become this way when we fail to recognize that what happens as separated is essentially always what appears to be two is always one, is always in unity. And so to return to oneness simply means to not create a conceptual gap. Everything originates from and return to the one mind. So how can we be separated? We understand how can we feel separated. We get that. But how can we be separated? So the two lines brought up in this koans in this koan are only a part of a longer dialogue. And Plajnatala, after that, proceeded to ask Bodhitala, what is it that all things are hung on? In other words, what is the source of everything we experience throughout our lives? And Bodhitala said, all things are hung on the senses of self and other. And finally, Prajnatala asked, what is the highest among things? Prajnatala said, the actual nature is the highest. The actual nature is the highest. And this is a bold statement. He's saying that essentially we are unhindered and nothing is substantiated, but our senses are giving us a whole different image or sense of reality. Because the sense of being held back arises out of a sense of being fixed. A fixed me, a fixed other, and a fixed gap between the two. And he's going directly to that, pulls the rug under our feet and says there is nothing there. And it can be upsetting if someone says there is nothing there. If we don't understand what that means. Sengsan in Xingjin Mei says, Seize all speech and thought, then everywhere you are with the way. To attain the principle, return to the source. Pursuing reflections, the essence is lost. Inner illumination, in a moment, surpasses idle emptiness. So pursuing reflections is what we do. Of course, it doesn't feel this way. So Prajnatara then still waited until the moment had ripened. And sometime after this, the, after this, the king died. While everyone was mourning, Bodhitala sat before the coffin in Samadhi for seven days. And then he went to Prajnatara and requested ordination as a monk. 
Natalaj Natala, seeing that the moment has arrived, she agreed to ordain him. And following this, Bodhitala sat and practiced for seven days before the presence of Lajnatala and received complete instructions from the, of the subtleties of practice. On hearing these teachings, Bodhitala realized supreme insight. And then Lajnatala said to him, You have complete wisdom into the principle of the Dharma. Dharma means complete knowing. Thus, I shall name you Bodhidharma, awakened Dharma. Having received the transmission, Bodhidharma knelt and asked, I have realized the Dharma. Now, where shall I go to do the work of the Buddhas? Prajnatara said, You have realized the Dharma. Stay here in southern India for time, for some time. Sixty-seven years following my death, you should travel to China and establish there strong medicine to teach those of excellent potential. Bodhidharma asked, Will I be able to find those who can become vessels for these teachings? Will there be trouble there over the next thousand years? Prajnatara answered, there will be numberless people who will wake up in that land where you shall teach. There will be some trouble as well, so you should lay low. Having thus received the transmission instructions, Bodhidharma attended Prajnatara for 40 years. Following Prajnatara's death, Bodhidharma began to teach and became well known throughout India. After 60 years, Bodhidharma knew that the time was, has come to, and he was supposed to journey into China. So he got on a boat, traveled for three years before arriving in southern China in the year 527. When he arrived, he was called for a meeting with the Emperor Wu of Liang Dynasty in southern China. And then there was this well-known dialogue between Bodhidharma and Emperor Wu. Emperor asked, what is the highest meaning of the holy truth? Bodhidharma said, empty, without holiness. So Wu asked him, who is facing me? Bodhidharma said, I do not know. I do not know. From there, Bodhidharma traveled to the northern kingdom of Wei and settled at the Shaolin Monastery near Songshan. He sat there throughout the day and night. No one could understand anything about him and they just referred to him as the wall-gazing Brahmin. Bodhidharma sat in this way without giving any verbal explanations and expounded the Dharma only through his being. He'll ask, how many people would actually stick around somebody who does not explain? How many of you will stick around if I just sit there? After nine years, he passed on his skin, flesh, bones, and marrow to his four disciples, Daofu, Dayu, Kongji, and Huike, when he saw that their potential were ripe. Of his four successors, Huike was the one who received the bowl and the 
robe. And during these times, there were teachers of other sect who tried to kill him, and he evaded their attempts six times. After the last attempt, he decided that his work is done and the time has come. He then sat in Zazen and died peacefully. That's one version of the story. There's another version that he actually peacefully went back to India. He was very old at the time. So some of you may be aware on, or not that uh, there are some scholarly disagreements about the details of Bodhidharma's life and even about his historical existence. Some say that there was such a person, others that the stories of Bodhidharma are a compilation of five different people put together into one person. But from what I understand, scholars are unable to either prove or refute his historical existence. And so we are left with what has been passed on from generation to generation to us today. And either way, either way, when it comes to the study and practice, it doesn't really matter if it did or it did not exist in this way. What matters is that we verified ourselves, right? As we chanted again this morning, if we turn inward and prove our true nature, if we, each of us, do the work of proving our true nature, and if we do, then Bodhidharma is alive and well. If we don't, then we go between one version to another, trying to figure out which one is better, which one makes more sense, which one can we prove, which one can we refute. Does it really matter? Transmission outside of words and scriptures includes outside of thoughts and comparisons. At the core, Bodhidharma's teachings are summed up as a special transmission outside of scriptures, not founded upon words and letters. By pointing directly to one's mind, it lets one see into one's true nature and thus to attain Buddhahood. And this simple statement is probably the most important contribution to the living tradition of Zen, which we share in the Rinzai and Soto schools, actually. Right? It can't be attained, it can't be accumulated, and it can't be given from another. And it does not rely on any verbal explanations, logic, or on sutras and commentaries. There is no other kind of Zen. Bodhidharma said, To find a Buddha, you have to see your nature. Whoever sees his nature is a Buddha. If you don't see your nature invoking Buddhas, reciting sutras, making offerings, and keeping precepts are all useless. In other words, our practice can become useless. This is it. It's up to us to make it so. Yeah, this is a great chant. This is a great practice. But it's up to us to make it so. So just sitting one period after another, after another, again and again and again, may be a waste of time. Or not. 
or not. So by turning the attention inwardly and pointing directly to the one who is bearing witness, we can see that, as Kazan says in the verse, there is no more location, no bounds, no outside. We can understand his question. Is there anything at all, even in the slightest? Realizing nothingness, realizing nothingness, gives birth to true wisdom, humility, and compassion. When there is nothing there, everything is included, and nothing is rejected, or no one is rejected. You know, people often think that shunyata, or emptiness, is dismissive of what happens in everyday life, or dismissive of, of emotions. And that it means that we need to stifle or suppress anything, and turn away from feelings of empathy, care, or love. But this is just the way it is interpreted through our conventional eyes and discriminating consciousness. When the eye of wisdom opens, this view is radically flipped and shunyata becomes the foundation for genuine expression of compassion and humility. So, hence, upside down, right side up. Being upside down, of course, is going to appear this way. Of course, there will be nothing there in Zen that may be so enticing or interesting to the mind. Sometimes people say, what else is there in Zen? What else is there? What more do we want? Why do we get bored? Why do we think that we always have to be entertained? The problem is it is too simple, right? So I think we make it complicated because it is too simple. So we ask questions and we look at this this way and that way. And what about this? And what if we do that? And what if we just sit there? Does it work? Is it boring? Look how quickly the mind will look for something to chew on. And if this thing is not given, then we may give up on the practice. And look for a practice that is uh, promising to entertain us, to give us some refreshments once in a while. or maybe to distract us once in a while. Essentially, is there anything there? And what is nothingness? There's a great story that some of you have heard before about Rumi and the Seeker, which portrays emptiness very well, or nothingness. One time, a young man decided to leave his homeland and go to learn from the great teacher Rumi in Konya. After weeks of arduous travel, he finally reached the outskirts of Konya and saw a gracious presence walking toward him. The young man knew in his heart that this was Rumi. So he dropped to his knees in prostration before this great teacher. 
we had we has been teach, seeking for a while. But as he arose from kneeling, he saw that Rumi was prostrated in the dirt towards him. Amazed and embarrassed, the young man again prostrated himself, and again he found Rumi prostrated towards him. This happened over and over again until the exhausted young man finally said, Why are you, my teacher, prostrating yourself in the dust before me, a mere seeker? And to this Rumi replied, If I did not show you my nothingness, what would I be useful for? It's a beautiful story and a beautiful statement. If I don't show you, if we don't show each other our nothingness, what are we good for? Right? And if we don't show nothingness, then what we're attached to is the, the, the gleaming, right? What we look for is that shiny me and my shiny story. Right? That's where the mind goes. Not knowing that nothing always surpasses something. So to show nothingness, to not be afraid to appear utterly naked, as we say, no makeup in front of one, in front of each other, and to know that this total giving is a medicine for a sick world. So, is this how we feel when we prostrate, when we put the forehead on the ground? Do we feel it? Do we experience the bliss of nothing? And this nothingness has been transmitted to us directly from Bodhidharma. And this is what we embrace wholeheartedly as our Zen practice. This is what we're talking about. So I want to finish with a few words from Bill Porter from the book called The Zen Teachings of Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma's approach to Zen was unique. As he says in, the, in his sermons, seeing your nature is Zen, not thinking about anything is Zen, everything you do is Zen. So again, seeing your nature is Zen, not thinking about anything is Zen, and everything you do is Zen. And then he says, while others view Zen as purification of the mind, or as, a, or as a stage on the way to Buddhahood, Bodhidharma equated Zen with Buddhahood, and Buddhahood with the mind, and everyday mind, not just mind, the everyday mind. Instead of, instead of telling his disciples to purify their minds, he pointed them to rock walls, to the movement of tigers and cranes, to a hollow reed floating across the Yangtze River, to a single sandal, Bodhidharma Zen was Mahayana Zen, not Hinayana Zen, the sword of wisdom, not the meditation cushion. As did other masters, he undoubtedly instructed his disciples in Buddhist discipline, meditation, and doctrine, and he used the sword the Prajnatala had given him to cut their minds free from rules, trances, and scriptures. Such a sword, though, is hard to grasp, 
and hard to use. And that's true. All right? It may be hard to use, that, but if we want to preserve the true heart of Zen, we, each of us, we need to learn how to wield this great sword. We have it at our disposal. Always. We just need to trust that we have it and learn how to use it. That's our practice of wholeheartedness. Thank you. <laughs>